Every week, hundreds of people walk aisles in churches just like this one around the country to express their desire to follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Some of those people continue on in their faith. They become integrated into the family of God and follow him with their lives. Some of them don't. For them, it's a short-lived experience. How do you know if their conversion is genuine? Every night around the world, children kneel by their bedsides telling God that they love him. And they use language like, I want to ask Jesus into my heart. Some of those kids go on, they grow up, they follow Jesus faithfully with their lives. Some of them, as they get older, go their own way. How can you tell what will happen? What does that moment of genuine conversion look like? Day after day, friends sit in coffee shops or restaurants with each other and they tell one person telling another about how God has changed their life through a personal relationship with Jesus. And naturally, the other friend wants to experience this personal relationship as well. And so one friend begins telling the other friend about how to have a life with God, and as a result, they end up praying together. If you are in that situation, how do you know if you are leading a person toward genuine conversion. Some of us are here today, and if I ask you when you became a Christian or when you were converted, you might not be able to tell me a specific point in time. And maybe you wonder, if, is that okay or is it not okay? And still others of us bristle at the idea of talking about being converted. I mean, in a culture like ours, that's a bit of a harsh word, isn't it? After all, we now live in a time where being converted has such heavily negative connotation because certainly the world should conform to me. I shouldn't have to conform to anything. That's offensive to me. And surely a loving God who cares about me takes my delicate sensibilities in mind, doesn't he? He wouldn't want me to be converted, would he? Well, that is precisely what he demands, as a matter of fact. To be converted simply means to change in form, in character, or in function. What does genuine conversion look like? We've seen it. We've experienced it. We've also seen something less than genuine in conversion of some people. Why is it important to know the difference? Turn with me to Acts chapter 9 this morning. Acts chapter 9 is found on page 917 of that Pew Bible. And in this text, we see one of the most dramatic 
tellings or stories of conversion in the New Testament. It's the conversion of a man named Saul. And it is unique in its nature in many ways. And yet, in some ways, his conversion points to us what genuine conversion looks like for all of those who would follow Jesus. Acts chapter 9. Are you there? Follow along with me as I read, starting at verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that means any Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And Saul arose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered the Lord, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all of those who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul 
increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Today we continue our series that we're calling The Next Act. We're thinking together about the type of church we want to be. What does the next act of Old North look like? And as we're considering that question, we're going through selected passages in the book of Acts and seeing the priorities of God for his people. And here we see one of his chief priorities. We want our church to be a church that is marked by genuine conversion. Not superficial, not faking it. The real deal. And in this text of Acts 9, we see Saul, the persecutor of Christians, converted to faith in Jesus. And in his example, there are some elements that point us all to what true and genuine conversion look like. And that's what we're going to look at over the next couple of minutes this morning. The first piece of this story that we see in conversion is we see that Jesus seeks us out. Notice who the initiator is in this event. Saul is not looking for Jesus. But Jesus is very clearly looking for him. And in seeking him out, he shows an incredible amount of patience with him. Paul had heard the, or Saul had heard the gospel undoubtedly a number of times. He had seen this swell of new Christians begin to rise in the region, and yet he resisted. In fact, not only did he resist, but he attacked. He attacked them as heretics, and he persecuted them even to their death. Now, Jesus, even in the midst of tremendous injury to his own body, these people of his, didn't say probably what I would say, or what many of you would say. And that is, well, I gave you a chance. You didn't take the chance, and so now I'm going to move on to something or someone else. Just the opposite. In the midst of tremendous injury to his body, he exercised a tremendous amount of patience with Saul until he comes to faith. And when he confronts him on the road, we see that this is a very personal endeavor. You notice that he says in verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When he says his name twice like that, Saul, Saul, in the New Testament Greek, this is an intense emotional interaction. This is not a calling to faith based on happenstance or casual occurrence. Every single person that Jesus seeks is one who is known by him personally, one who he personally invests in. He knows you by name. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who stands outside of space and time, knows you by name, even if you don't know him, he sees 
He understands. He knows the obstacles in our hearts. He's seen the rebellion in our action. And yet, he pursues us anyway. This pursuit of God for those that he loves could be described in a number of different ways, and many have described it over the years. Some have talked about it in terms of the hounds of heaven chasing a fox until he is caught. Others describe it as the divine angler playing with his catch as he has him on the line. And my personal favorite that C.S. Lewis talks about at the end of his autobiography, he describes God like the divine chess player maneuvering him into the most disadvantageous positions until in the end he conceded checkmate. And that sense of repeated exposure to the message of God that Saul had, that sense that God is seeking him out and seeks out each individual, this is common to many of our experiences. Most of us didn't simply hear the gospel of forgiveness of sins for the first time and then believe. But God, through a variety of means and methods and circumstances and conversations, continued to move us into a place to soften our hearts, to open our minds, until one day, checkmate. And we surrendered ourselves to him. God wouldn't let us go. He kept pursuing. Another part of genuine conversion that we see in this text that is true to our experience is that when Saul saw Jesus and when we see Jesus for who he is, in many ways we are brought to our knees in conviction. When you look at the text, you see that Jesus appears to him and Saul falls to the ground. This was a man who was violently opposed to God. It says in verses 1 and 2, he was breathing out murderous threats against God's people. He was taking legal action to go arrest Christians, bring them before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. He was attacking God and attacking his people. And when Jesus confronts him, he confronts him right in the place of his sin. He doesn't trivialize it. He doesn't soft pedal it. He says to his face, why are you persecuting me? He calls it what it is. Because the rebellion against him is an attack on him. An attack on his people is an attack on him. You know, Saul was violently opposed to God Here's the reality of the situation. Every single one of us was violently opposed to God before Jesus sought us out. Scriptures talk about this in all kinds of ways. One such example is in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. It says, and you, meaning you, all of us, 
who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you as holy and blameless and above reproach. Like Saul, we were not simply morally neutral. Now, you may not have persecuted Christians. You may not have violently attacked the idea of God or his works or his ways. But let's not make any mistake about it. In some way, in some shape, in some form, each and every one of us were opposed to him, hostile in mind. And when confronted with Jesus, the person of Jesus, for who he really is, the response then becomes an overwhelming sense of conviction regarding that sin and hostility. Many of us can remember that feeling of conviction that came over us during our conversion. And the best I can describe the idea of conviction of sin is something like this. It's, it's like God gives us a sense of just a small fraction of the weight of our sin. And because it's so heavy, our legs are quivering. Our arms are shaking. The weight of that sin becomes unbearable to us. Combine that sense of weight with the feeling of shock when you come to realize how great an offense of our sin is toward God. This God that has only ever shown us love and generosity and provision and his grace. And this is why when so many people come to faith in Jesus, they do so with tears in their eyes or trembling in their body. Because the conviction that comes upon us in that moment, it's intense. A well-known professional golfer was playing golf one day in a tournament with President Gerald Ford. Jack Nicholas and Billy Graham. And as they played their round of golf and brought to its completion, another golf pro came up to him afterward and said, hey, what was it like playing golf with Billy Graham? To which the man responded in disgust, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing his religion down my throat. And he stormed off to the practice tee. His friend followed him over, and after taking his frustration out on a bucket of golf balls, the friend said to the golfer, so Billy was pretty hard on you out there today, huh? To which the golfer replied, no, he didn't even bring up religion or Jesus the whole time we talked. This man had, in sort of a temper tantrum type of style, stormed off, accusing Billy Graham of ramming his religion down his throat, when the whole time he hadn't even brought it up. Why? Because he had fallen under the weight of conviction. Billy Graham didn't have to say a word. The Spirit was working in his midst, and he was desperately trying to push against it. 
Now, it's important to realize that when we are faced with the glory of Jesus, the natural response for sinful people like us is conviction of that sin. And in this sense, when we think about our own conversions and when we share the gospel with our friends and with our neighbors, the reason why we don't shy away from thinking about or from talking about sin is because there's a very real sense in which we need to understand what we are saved from before we can understand what we are saved to. I am saved from shame, from guilt, from murderous thoughts, from lustful ideas, all of which make me deserving of eternal punishment. And I am saved to something beautiful and eternal and infinite in a relationship with God. And that conviction is part of genuine conversion. Another part of genuine conversion that we see in this text is the call to change. Look at it with me. Jesus says to Saul that he is supposed to get up and he's supposed to go to a place and then he continues to direct him through his dreams and through his vision toward what might be considered his ultimate faith in Christ. This call to change that happens as part of conversion is one in which repentance and belief come together hand in hand. To repent of your sin means, yes, you recognize, you fall under the conviction of it, but in the very next step, you turn away from it and pursue it no longer. It no longer rules over you. It no longer dominates your thoughts and your thinking. Paul no longer goes against Jesus. He goes with Jesus. And in doing so, he believes. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this conversion story in the Bible is that you don't see the word belief and you don't see the word faith at all. When again and again in the Bible we hear to put your faith in Jesus means to believe or to be in relationship with God means to exercise faith. But here we don't see any of that in words. But we see it in an image. And the image is one of blindness and one in which the scales fall off of his eyes. Not only is Saul blinded because he saw the glory of Jesus, but his blindness exists in the passage to display his spiritual condition. And so it is with all of us before we come to faith. We are spiritually blind and it takes a work of God through the illuminating and regeneration of the Holy Spirit to change that. We were blind. Now imagine with me bumping around in the dark. Some of us not caring or indifferent toward God. Others of us violently opposed to him and still some of us genuinely seeking a him 
but all of us in the exact same place, bumping around in the dark, spiritually blind. Until illumination and the Spirit of God enters your life and the scales fall off of your eyes and there are eyes to see and ears to hear who Jesus really is, what he really wants, how I really can respond. That's what regeneration looks like. And for Saul, we see that in this text as the Holy Spirit comes upon him and the scales fall down in his belief. Now, for some of us, this happens internally when we're in the quiet of our own home reading the Bible. For others of us, this moment of the scales falling down happens in the course of conversation with somebody we know, somebody we love, maybe somebody we just met. And still for many of us, it happens to the teaching or the preaching of God's Word. And maybe, maybe for some of us, we're starting to see King Jesus for who he really is, what that means for me, and maybe even for some of us, that is happening today. The final thing that we see in this text with regard to genuine conversion is Paul's response in obedience. Jesus tells him to get up and to go to Ananias. He goes. And now, after he goes and his scales are removed from his eyes, he has a purpose in his life. Now, God makes some of this purpose known in verses 15 and 16. And it might not be the purpose completely that you would hope for. The Lord said to Ananias regarding this Saul, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. God had a purpose for his life and it wasn't to make him feel better. It wasn't to make him have less problems. It wasn't to give him sort of a happy existence ever after. His purpose was one thing. To glorify God by making Jesus known. That was his purpose. And in doing so, he would have to suffer. Now it's almost, it's almost too easy these days to pick on some of the health and wealth gospel preachers like Joel Osteen and some others that claim that when you put your faith in Jesus, everything's going to get better. Because we know that that's not true. We know that God doesn't promise to make us healthier, though sometimes he does. We know that God doesn't promise, promise to make us all of the difficult circumstances of our lives to immediately resolve, though sometimes they do. And we know that God doesn't promise to make us wealthier. Sometimes he does. God doesn't promise any of those things upon conversion, but he does promise something infinitely greater. Purpose. You have a purpose in your life to glorify God with it and to make Jesus known in my job 
in my family, with my money, with my time, with my Christian service. Purpose. No longer was this Saul destined to pursue his wealth or his fame or his accomplishments. The pursuit of those things were natural. They were self-serving in nature. But now there is a divine, eternal purpose attached to his life and to the lives of all of those who would follow Jesus. As he went from place to place and began to share in verses 20 and 21 and 22 what Jesus had done. Conversion. God's people are marked by genuine conversion. Conversion. Jesus seeks us out. We fall under conviction of our sin. There's a call to change, which includes repentance and belief, and there's a following of obedience that happens. Conversion. Now, I want to give you a warning, because I hear this from time to time, and it's important to address. In conversion... There needs to be an actual decision that you make. There is a point of what we call faith or faith action that come together. Sometimes people say to me, well, I've always been a Christian. I was born that way. Or I grew up in a Christian home. And as a result of growing up in a Christian home, um, I just have always had saving faith in Jesus. But in genuine conversion, there is a moment in time where you cross over from death to life, where you go from hostile to onside. You weren't born that way. You weren't raised that way. And if you grew up in a Christian home and you feel, kind of feel like you were raised that way, then good. Your parents did their job. But at some point, this Belief and faith and following was appropriated to you personally. Some of us look back in time and we can say, I remember the precise moment that I was converted. Others of us look back in time and say, I can't exactly say when that happened for me. But I know that it did. And the reason why I know that it did is because I fully believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that I've experienced the forgiveness of sins that he offers, and I follow him faithfully with my life. So I don't know when it was, but I know there was a time that it happened. And still others of us, maybe that moment of faith action, conversion, has not yet happened. Let me tell you about a friend of mine named Bob. Bob was born in Phillipsburg, New Jersey. His father abandoned his mother and he when he was just 18 months old. So he never really knew his dad. And as a result, he had somewhat of a hard upbringing. Though even though he probably didn't recognize it that way. It's all he ever knew. He had a mother who worked very hard to provide for him and who loved him dearly. And he was tasked with exercising a certain level of responsibility, even as a young child. Bob grew up in an evangelical church. He heard the good news of Jesus' forgiveness 
many times throughout his childhood and teenage years. He recognized the message, but he didn't put his faith in Christ. When he was 17 years old, he enlisted in the Air Force. He left home. He left this mom who had raised him and who had worked hard for him. He stationed in Texas for a time, stationed in Illinois for a time until he finally landed at Otis Air Force Base in Massachusetts. And all along the way, Bob met Christians. He heard the gospel, but he still was not interested in placing his faith in Jesus. But as time went on, this divine chess player was continuing to maneuver him into the most disadvantageous position. An experience over here. A conversation over there. A seemingly random meeting over here. Terrible thoughts as he began to reckon with his mortality as a young man of 22 years old and thinking about the terror of being laid to rest in a coffin and having that coffin closed shut on top of him never to be opened again. Feelings of inadequacy before God. I mean, Bob was a good guy. Never really got into much trouble. But even he knew that he wasn't good enough to approach God. And the chess player continued to maneuver him. Until one day, he found himself at Ruggles Street Baptist Church in downtown Boston with his girlfriend. And the preacher was a guy named John DeBrine. And he shared, Dr. DeBrine, about God's love and God's pursuit and what conviction of sin meant and what genuine conversion looked like. And before you know it, it was like the scales fell off of his eyes. And for the first time, Bob said to the Lord, you have me in checkmate. I think that experience, not overly dramatic in its nature, but significant in the individual pieces is an experience that many of us have experienced. Because God's people are marked by genuine conversion. I wonder where you are today. Perhaps you can't remember your own conversion, but you know it happened and you're grateful. Maybe you remember the day, the moment, the hour, what was going through your mind, the smell in the air, the circumstances in which God brought you to your knees in conviction. And you think back on that moment with joy in your heart and tears in your eyes because God continued to pursue an unworthy person like you. God's people are marked by genuine conversion. And maybe you're here today, and today is your moment. Your moment when God is opening your eyes right before us, where conviction of your sin is welling up within you, 
where you are willing to say to God, you have me in checkmate. And you desire to put your faith in him. You know, the Bible says that the cost of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Jesus says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So today, with gratitude in your hearts, for those of you who have been converted, as we look forward together as what this church will be like as a place of genuine conversion, And for some of you today, recognizing that I need to make that decision. Maybe you're here and you need to rededicate your life to Christ. You had a moment of conversion some time ago and you've wandered. As Nathan, as the worship team, come back up, I want to ask you to respond to this divine chess player this morning. I want to ask you if you want to put your faith in Jesus for the first time during this last song, to come forward. Some of our elders will come up and pray with you. If you want to rededicate your life to Christ, to come forward, and we'd like to pray with you. And for all of us, in just a moment, to stand and sing loudly about how great this saving work of God is through Jesus. Will you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, When we see the story of Saul, how we wish we too could see you face to face. That there would be no doubt in our mind in such a way as that. But Lord, we know that you do show yourself to us. And that even now, as we, some of us think back on how you've done that, we express joy in our hearts. And for some of us, realizing I have never made that decision, we surrender ourselves to you. And we say, God, we are yours. In Jesus' name.